The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour, the Supreme Court agrees to decide whether Donald Trump can be kicked off the Colorado ballot in a landmark case. The special counsel asks the judge to rein in Trump at trial, and Trump wants him cited for contempt. Increasing lawsuits against universities over anti-Semitism. And Mickey Mouse enters a new magical kingdom called the public domain. The Supreme Court is plunging into the 2024 election and the national debate over Donald Trump's candidacy. The justices have agreed to decide a landmark constitutional clash over efforts to remove Trump from this year's presidential ballot for trying to overturn the 2020 election. It was an outrageous attempt at uh, disenfranchising millions and millions of voters by getting us thrown off the ballot. The court will consider whether Colorado can bar Trump from the presidential ballot under the provision of the Constitution that bans insurrectionists from holding public office. The justices will hear the case on an expedited basis with arguments on February 8th. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. What's your reaction to the Supreme Court deciding to take this case and deciding quickly? It's not a surprise. It's a very important issue. It has national ramifications. There's so far been at least two states, whether it's Colorado and then the main secretary of state, who've gone one way, want to take him off the ballot. There are other states that have rejected that. And I think the way they've set it up, they're going to do it quickly. They've set oral argument for February 8th, which means they can get a decision down in time before the ballot's finalized in those states. I think February 12th might be the date for the Colorado ballot. I'm not sure. But they have a chance this way of uh, being done fast. And they've given the parties a fairly short schedule. They're planning to have oral argument in basically a month. Isn't that a very short timeline for the parties to get the briefs together and to prepare for the oral arguments? It's tight, but I think it's driven by the election schedule, by the election calendar. I think they want to get this wrapped up and done before ballots get final in a lot of states. Many legal experts are saying on an issue like this, with so many political and legal ramifications, the chief justice is likely to seek a consensus, possibly with a narrow ruling. Do you agree with that? It's hard to say. I mean, it may very well be that he's not going to have any difficulty with that. I mean, it would certainly be ideal for this question for the court to speak with as close to one voice as possible. I think they're going to move very quickly. So I don't know that there'll be a lot of time for bargaining, but I think this is one where everybody on the court presumably thinks it would be ideal for this question for the court to speak with as close to one voice as they can. As they can. But won't that be difficult with this particular court? It's hard to say. I mean, this is such a this is a truly unprecedented issue. So, you know, there's no real backdrop to this. I mean, yes, you know, it has a political aspect to it, but It's not one where there is like any kind of precedent 
that there's any sense that the judges are bringing particular ideological perspectives to how this should be resolved. On Thursday, a group of House Democrats sent Justice Clarence Thomas a letter demanding that he recuse himself from this case, citing his wife's involvement in January 6th. Do you think that Thomas will heed this call to recuse himself? I think it's unlikely. The arguments for his recusal is, of course, based on his wife's active involvement in some of the activity that led up to January 6th. It might make sense for him to recuse himself, but he doesn't seem to be very bothered by any of the challenges raised about him, any of the complaints raised about him. I think he's pretty nonchalant about all that stuff. I agree with you completely on that. Let's turn now to some of the issues that the court will be facing. Trump's petition attacking the Colorado ruling does so on several grounds. Is there one that you find particularly compelling? Honestly, I think he is really going at it in all directions, some of which are purely procedural and maybe kick the can down the road, which is, you know, the amendment only prohibits somebody from holding office. It doesn't affect who can be on the ballot. He's got some arguments that it's something that state courts can't handle, that it's outside state court jurisdiction. So he has some arguments that are designed to kind of skirt the merits, which might mean that they come back later. He's got some arguments that are hyper-technical, I think. One about whether or not the president is an officer of the United States within the meaning of the Constitution. It sounds like a really odd argument. Of course, the president is an officer of the United States, but Trump's lawyers do have a, a plausible technical argument based on the language of the Constitution that maybe the president isn't picked up by that language. And then there's the ones that really go to what we might consider the heart of the fight, which is, was January 6th an insurrection and was Trump engaged in it? And so we don't know. I mean, I think they're really fighting on all fronts procedural ones that argue that the Colorado court sort of screwed up Colorado election law and Colorado election procedure, technical ones about the meaning of officer of the United States, and maybe ones about was January 6th an insurrection and did he engage in it. Their brief covers just about everything. One non-technical ground is their argument that, quote, the Colorado Supreme Court decision would unconstitutionally disenfranchise millions of voters in Colorado and likely be used as a template to disenfranchise tens of millions of voters nationwide. And even his opponents in the Republican presidential primary seem to say, let the voters decide this. Yeah, I mean, that's a real tension between, you know, the notion of democracy as the voters getting to decide and the notion that we're a democracy governed by the rule of law. I mean, let's say he wasn't a citizen. I mean, if he's not a citizen, he's not eligible. And it's not clear to me that voters have a protected right to vote for an ineligible person, let's say a non-citizen, or somebody who's only 30 years old and not 35. So I think their argument that this is depriving the voters of the right to choose is implicitly saying they think he's eligible, that they think that 14.3 doesn't bar him. I mean, if the Constitution means anything, all of our rights provisions of the Constitution are designed to put some constraint on what voters can do or what elected legislatures can do. And the First Amendment, the Second Amendment are all constraints on what voters can accomplish. So, I mean, I think as a political argument, it's a strong one. It has a lot of resonance in our system where we do believe that the voters should decide things. But it is in tension with the idea that we're not just a democracy, we're a constitutional democracy, and there are some rules. Rich, ignoring the legal arguments for a minute, does this court want to be the first to keep a candidate, a former president, off the ballot and pave the way for a year of constitutional turbulence? 
It would be echoes of Bush v. Gore, but for a court that's been mired in ethics controversies and polarizing decisions. So are they perhaps going to look for a technical way to decide this? Well, I think at some point they're going to have to decide something. And there are ways of deciding this. I mean, that's the nice thing about the Trump brief is they've given them many ways to decide this that don't involve deciding whether or not January 6th was an insurrection. And some of these include the argument that I don't find persuasive, that some people do, is that 14.3 is what's called non-self-executing. That, in other words, it requires congressional legislation to implement it, and Congress clearly hasn't passed anything. I don't think that's a very strong argument, but it's something that an argument people can use. I do think the one about officer of the United States is a technical way out, though it would be a big decision to say the president is not an officer. I think there could be arguments about the flawed process that the Colorado court system used, although that would leave this open to possibly another state, which was a better process doing it. So I do think they have a lot of options. I agree. I think it would be a very bold thing for the court to conclude that he's ineligible. But you never know. I mean, and I do think there are many ways in which the court could find him eligible without passing on whether what happened on January 6th was an insurrection. The Colorado court's ruling specifically addressed the Republican primary in the state. So right. would a Supreme Court decision apply just to the primary, or is it up to them to decide how broad it is? Exactly. It would depend on the language. I mean, I think the um, argument is and this is one of the arguments that Trump raises, is that the 14.3 actually doesn't address elections at all. It addresses eligibility to serve, and therefore it might be enforceable only by Congress. I mean, that's one of their arguments, is that it doesn't say who can run for office. It just says who can serve, and so maybe the argument is the Colorado Supreme Court had no role in deciding who gets to be on the ballot, other than, you know, if they've followed the process for getting on the ballot and that the ultimate decision would be up to Congress, and that's one possibility. So the court has this case. Also, the question of presidential immunity is bound to come up to the court again. Right, right. And they've also decided that they're going to examine the validity of a law used to charge people, including Trump, in connection with 2020. I mean, it seems like this court is going to be part of this presidential election, in a way, I'm sure that most of the justices, certainly the chief justice, wouldn't want, but they're sort of forced into it. Yeah, I mean, some of these things they've chosen, like they're the ones who agreed to hear the case challenging the use of particular federal statute about corruptly disrupting proceedings, whether or not that applied to what happened on January 6th. That one was a choice, but most of the others, they don't have much choice. That's true. I mean, I think, you know, the issues that surround Trump are unprecedented, but he has acted in ways that are unprecedented for a president. So it's not surprising that these amazing new cases that's coming up, the things that he has done or said to have done really are unique in, in American history. It looks like 2024 is going to be quite a year for elections law. Thanks so much, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafault of Columbia Law School. Coming up next, another legal front for Donald Trump the criminal case for election interference. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And in the end, they're not after me. They're after you. I just happen to be standing in their way, and I always will stand in their way. Donald Trump's presidential campaign seems to be driven by grievance over the four criminal cases he's facing. It's a campaign narrative where Trump is the victim of an unfair justice system, the target of a witch hunt, and he often vilifies the prosecutors bringing those cases, especially special counsel Jack Smith. And did you see today that deranged Jack Smith, he's the prosecutor, he's a deranged person, wants to take away my rights. And Jack Smith is attempting to stop Trump from bringing his politics and misinformation into the courtroom during his criminal trial for election interference. He's filed a motion asking trial judge Tanya Chutkin to limit the defenses Trump can raise at trial. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. So special counsel Jack Smith filed a motion last Wednesday to prevent Trump and his defense lawyers from turning, quote, the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation. Is this basically a motion designed to stop the expected circus that comes with Trump? I mean, we saw it in the New York civil case by the attorney general. Sure. These are critical motions that were filed by the special counsel, in order to limit the scope of where the defense can actually go during this trial. So what Mr. Smith did was to file with the judge a motion barring 10 different forms of evidence that he anticipates that the Trump defense may raise a trial. These are what's called pretrial evidentiary rulings or in limine motions where a judge is asked before a trial to make a ruling as to what evidence can be permitted and what evidence has to be excluded from the trial. And they can be filed by both sides. The defense can file it in the limiting motion, so can the prosecution. But what we're seeing here is an attempt by the prosecutor to rein in what could be a very far-flung defense and, in the eyes of prosecutors, an attempt to distract the jury and to politicize this case on a whole series of issues that do not go directly to the evidence that will ultimately convict or acquit former President Trump at trial. So this kind of motion, called a motion in limine, as you mentioned, is common, isn't it? It's quite common. It's filed in many criminal cases. And again, what you try to avoid here is a issue coming up in the middle of the trial. You've got jurors in panel. They're sitting there. They've been hearing a case for a while. What the judge doesn't want and what the prosecution doesn't want is to go into a big argument about some issue as to what can be admitted to trial, what can't be admitted in trial. And in order to give both sides a fair opportunity to prepare adequately for the trial, prosecutors will often ask a judge before a trial begins to limit in some way the evidence that the defense is allowed to present to the jury during the trial. Trump has repeatedly said this is a vindictive prosecution directed by Joe Biden and constitutes election interference. Smith wants to prevent him from raising selective prosecution during the trial. What are the standards the judge will use? I mean, is it relevance, prejudicial? What kind of standards? Well, that's a great question. I think 
the two themes that we are going to see the defense try to go after here are selective prosecution, as you say, and also the concept of election interference. The selective prosecution argument is basically trying to argue that similarly situated defendants have been treated differently by prosecutors and that the defendant in this case is being singled out for some improper motive. So to give a very simple example of selective prosecution, if you're driving down the New Jersey Turnpike and there's 10 people speeding and they pull only you over and the other nine people are not pulled over, even though everybody is perhaps speeding and you're the only one who gets a ticket, you can't really raise selective prosecution there to say that it's unfair that you were ticketed and they were not. You have to go beyond that and to show that you were singled out for some kind of improper motive. So in this case, to raise selective prosecution is going to be extremely difficult just because there's really nothing to compare this case to. It's so unique. It's so unprecedented. That's to say that former President Trump is being singled out here when other similarly situated defendants may have been treated differently is unlikely to be successful. There's a lot of defense arguments the special counsel is trying to prevent including blaming the violence on January 6th on poor law enforcement or provocation by undercover agents or foreign interference. And this just brings to mind cases where it seems like defense attorneys throw everything at the wall and hope that something will stick. And is the special counsel trying to prevent Trump from doing that? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And that is the tension between the prosecutor and the defense. When you're the prosecutor, you want this case to go in very focused, very streamlined. You want everything during the case to be focused directly on the evidence and whether or not you've met your burden of proof. When you're on the defense side, it's a completely different role that you're playing. You're trying to raise every issue under the sun. You're trying to bring in all kinds of extraneous and perhaps irrelevant information because at the end of the day, If even one juror is confused by the evidence and unable to vote to convict, then you have a victory there. A hung jury, even one juror not voting for conviction means that the prosecution has to retry the case all over again. So the defense is going to try to raise a number of issues which they claim are relevant. And here, the foreign interference defense is something that they're going to pursue, I think, quite vigorously. And that defense is basically asking for the government to give them access The more government documents, including classified information from former President Trump's administration that he believes will back up his argument that the election results couldn't be trusted. In other words, that there were outside and foreign influences that were providing disinformation about the campaign. All of this is trying to support the Trump defense that his belief that the election was not fair and was not accurate was something that he believed in good faith. And by raising proof of foreign interference, it supports the argument that his belief that the election was not properly managed, it was not a fair result, was at least a good faith belief, if not in fact true. The special counsel filed this motion, even though the case has been put on hold during the appeal of Trump's claim of presidential immunity. And Trump has made, I want to call it a silly motion, to have Smith held in contempt just for filing this motion. What's really going on here? So at this point, the judge can receive motions and at least review them and think about them while they are in this period where they're waiting for the Court of Appeals to rule. So while she can't issue any decisions, 
she can look at those issues. And what the prosecution is trying to do here is tee these things up so that when the Court of Appeals rules and the prosecution expects that the immunity defense will be rejected, the judge will quickly move to these various in limine motions and be able to rule on them quickly. Another thing that's going on here is that we're seeing here a real battle between the defense and the prosecution over who controls the narrative in this case. And so what special counsel Jack Smith has done here is he's raised all of these issues to try to get out in front of the Trump defenses in order to put them on the radar, not only of the court, but also on the public to project in some ways exactly where the prosecution is going, and to try to debunk and delegitimize these defenses, it really is a battle here over the legal versus political view of this case. Prosecutors are going to make this case all about the truth versus disinformation, about proof versus propaganda, about the difference between a court of law and the court of public opinion. And the Trump team, on the other hand, is going to try to make this case as political as possible. And they're going to try to raise the same themes that we have seen in the campaign, a world of grievance, blaming, trying to message something over and over and over again in the court of public opinion so that it ultimately sinks in and becomes truth. That's what I think we're going to see from the defense here leading up to the trial. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter and English. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. Instead of studying for finals like his classmates, University of Pennsylvania student Eyal Yacobi went to Capitol Hill on December 5th to warn about Penn's failure to respond to anti-Semitism on campus. Penn's ambivalence fuels a crisis that has shattered my academic sanctuary. Policies meant to safeguard us have become hollow promises. And let us be clear, if they fail Jewish students today, tomorrow they will fail the rest of us. That same day, Jacoby and another student filed a lawsuit against Penn, claiming the school fostered a hostile environment that left them feeling unsafe in class or crossing the campus. Their lawsuit is one of many filed in recent weeks against universities alleging anti-Semitism on campus and using Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis. David, has Title VI been used in this context before? Title VI has been used in different contexts, often by African-American students, but it's a new development that Jewish students have gotten so organized and have really concentrated on how they could use this law to abate the spike in anti-Semitism on campus. Title VI is enforced by the Office of Civil Rights at the Education Department, And so it can either be enforced by the government itself through the Education Department's Office of Civil Rights, or in what is sort of a novel twist, there are a series of private lawsuits that have been filed that seek essentially the same goal, which is to force colleges and universities to use the policies that are on the books that 
students are now complaining about. And the remedy that they're seeking is to ask a judge to order Penn to fire faculty and administrators that are responsible for what they say is the anti-Semitic abuse permeating the school. They also want a judge to order Penn to suspend or expel students engaged in such conduct. They're also looking for financial damages. Are they asking the school to suspend or expel students who protest against Israel or in support of the Palestinians? No. This is a very interesting area of the law. And what they say they're interested in putting an end to is harassment, either physical harassment, physical threats, or verbal statements that are perceived as threats. So mere protests themselves are not subject to this type of litigation. What they're trying to do is prevent the type of speech that is seen as harassing or intimidating. And so that's a bit of a gray area, obviously, and it's open to interpretation. But one of the aspects of this type of litigation is a question about just what is anti-Semitism and what constitutes anti-Semitic speech. And there's an international interpretation of anti-Semitism that if you deny the ability of Israel to exist, or you say that Israel should not exist, then that's considered anti-Semitism that's actionable. And Title VI is a powerful tool to force universities to change because of the threat of losing federal funding. Now, the threat is that that funding would be removed because of discrimination. In reality, it's very rare for the education department, for instance, to actually withhold funding. And schools are aware that it's a very bad practice to be considered to be discriminatory by the education department. And so they generally come to the bargaining table and reach agreements to change their practices. Thanks so much, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi, everybody. It's me, Mickey Mouse. Say, you want to come inside my clubhouse? To make the clubhouse appear, we get to say the magic words. Miska, Muska, Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse, perhaps the most iconic cartoon character of all time, is now officially in the public domain. Well, at least the first iteration of Mickey introduced in 1928 in the cartoon short Steamboat Willie. After almost a century, the copyright on Steamboat Willie has expired, like thousands of other copyrighted works published in 1928. That means that anyone can use that version of Mickey without permission. 
So, Mickey Mouse fans, get ready for the darker version of your favorite friendly mouse. He's being cast in horror movies like Mickey's Mouse Trap. Turn around to see Mickey as the slasher villain. It's a fate that befell another beloved children's character, Winnie the Pooh, after his copyright expired, and he ended up starring in Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Joining me to talk about this new role for Mickey is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catanuchin Rosenman. Terry, the length of copyright protection has been changed by Congress several times. It's a very interesting story, the history of durations of copyright in the United States. You know, the copyright is actually embedded in the Constitution of the United States. It expressly gives power to Congress to legislate copyrights for the protection of works, but then has a qualifier in the Constitution that says, for limited times, meaning that it can't be in perpetuity. It has to be some set number of years. And the first Copyright Act said copyright will last 14 years. And then over the uh, 19th century, that was expanded to 28 years. And then you have the famous 1909 reforms of the copyright laws. And one of the big issues was, is 28 years enough? And you have this famous episode where Samuel Longhorn Clemens, i.e. Mark Twain, comes and testifies live before Congress. And one of the congressmen asks him, how long do you think the copyright should last? And Mark Twain famously said, well, I think it should be long enough to take care of my children, but the grandchildren can fend for themselves. <laughs> and that was literally you know, taken as holy writ. It's the original Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie that's entering the public domain, right? So he's entirely in black and white. He doesn't wear a shirt or those signature white gloves. He has no voice, a pointier nose, a long tail, and solid black eyes for pupils. It's not the version of Mickey Mouse that we know. No, it's not the version that you run into if you go to Disney World. A lot of people forget the origins of Mickey Mouse. The first film he appeared in was called Steamboat Willie, and it was the first animated film with fully synchronized sound. And so in preparation for this show, I went back and watched it again. It's only seven and a half minutes, and it's now obviously available on every YouTube channel that you can find because it's no longer copyrights in the public domain. And you've described it exactly right. You, the incredible thing is he never talks <laughs> in the movie. You know, there's lots of sound, lots of music, including a sort of obnoxious rendition of Turkey in the Straw, but he never talks. And many of his physical characteristics are just different. You know, the one you notice immediately is the lack of the white gloves. And indeed, the name Mickey Mouse is not used. It's Steamboat Willie. And so what is now in the public domain is that story, that film, is in the public domain. And you know, long-time court precedent says that a character in a story or a movie or a novel that comes in the public domain, then the character also comes into the public domain. But it is that character. It's limited to that character in Steamboat Willie. Two directors say they're going to release horror films with Steamboat Willie. A trailer for one entitled Mickey's Mousetrap has already been released. In the trailer I saw, Mickey didn't speak and he was in black and white. But suppose someone colorized Mickey or used his high-pitched voice or even those iconic white gloves. I think colorization would be fine or filming it in color would be fine. The squeaky voice is something that we've 
for fun argued about within the copyright bar. There is one argument that that's not copyrightable in the first place. It's just squeaky voice. There are others who say, no, 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 that's a character trait that's unique to Mickey and should be copyrightable. So that issue is actually up in the air. The gloves are actually in a different realm, in my view. The gloves have been very significant for quite some time now. There have been ad campaigns involving just the gloves. I think that's completely different than the color of the shorts. I mean, I saw the um, article in Variety, as you probably did, where Stephen Lamort was actually saying in announcing the movie that he carefully lawyered up. Yeah. <laughs> that he had a team of lawyers already thinking about how they could do this. And I think that's going to be one of the tricks because Disney has always been aggressive about protecting his properties, particularly Mickey Mouse. They were actually less afraid of the horror sort of genre portrayal of Mickey Mouse as opposed to the pornographic portrayal. And there was an unlawfully made movie, I think it's called Mickey Mouse and the Air Pirates that they sued over. But those are the sort of concerns that Disney's always had. Those are real, and it's going to aggressively protect Mickey Mouse. But I think you're going to see all sorts of attempts to try to define what is and what is not allowed, what is or what is not in the public domain. And keep in mind, this is not the first significant animated character to come into the public domain. Winnie the Pooh came into the public domain last year. And Almost immediately, you saw the same sort of thing happen. There was a movie that came out called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, which was also a horror, a very bad horror movie that used the Winnie the Pooh character. And this year, in addition to Mickey Mouse or Steamboat Willie coming to the public domain, you get Peter Pan and you get Tigger from the Winnie the Pooh series because the house on Pooh Corner is now in the public domain. That was the first J.J. Moon book in which Tigger was introduced. So that character is now in the public domain. So you just going to see a lot of this and based, as you said, on that trailer that's already been put out there. It just doesn't look like particularly good entertainment. It may make for a good news article in Variety or Hollywood Reporter, but it just doesn't look like it's going to make a lot of money, in my view. And... Uh... Perhaps Tigger will be joining Winnie the Pooh and Piglet as they slash their way through another movie, a sequel. I guess we'll have to wait and see about that. Now, what about the title of this movie, Mickey's Mousetrap? Does that present problems? It's certainly questionable. I think if that low-budget film had hired lawyers, they would have cautioned against using that. And I note that the untitled work coming out by Stephen Lamort later this year in their announcement, they were really careful to say, we're not using the name Mickey Mouse. They're going to use Steamboat Willie throughout the movie. And that indeed may be the title, although at the moment it doesn't even have a working title. And that's, again, an example of how you have to navigate these potential traps to avoid generating a lawsuit by Disney. And it's, an, again, a sign of how you know you can be as creative as you want with the new product you're bringing out, but you got to get advice from the lawyers as to how to do this. And it seems like Mr. Bill Mort's done a pretty good job so far of, of anticipating some of the traps that might be out there. The Mickey Mouse traps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't couldn't mean resist, that And I just couldn't resist. And Disney still retains trademarks on Mickey Mouse, right? The trademark in Mickey Mouse continues. And if you do anything that suggests that your use of the Mickey Mouse character somehow connects you or associates you or you are somehow affiliated with Disney, you're going to get a trademark lawsuit, set aside copyright. And that will be a very, very successful lawsuit, I think. And what does the trademark cover? So the 
trademark is on the phrase Mickey Mouse, and to the extent that that is used in commerce to identify a product or service of the Disney Corporation. The same with the image. The character Mickey Mouse, there have been multiple iterations over the years, but you know, as each one comes free, it becomes possible for you to use the image of that character as long as you do not use it in such a way as to suggest an affiliation and association with Disney. You can't mislead people. And that's the tricky part where you have both a trademark and a copyright, as is the case here. And it's going to be a real challenge for some of the people wanting to use the Steamboat Willie character going forward to figure out how to navigate in such a way that you don't open yourself up for a charge of trademark infringement by suggesting an association or affiliation with Disney. So we'll watch out for the lawsuits from the famously litigious Disney. Thanks so much, Terry. Public Domain Week is always a fascinating time to talk to you. That's Terrence Ross of Cat and Eugen Rosenman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.